it's not that radical is the fundamental and and the hysteria about it is frustrating and and it's in a way radicalizing the old world is dying the new world struggles to be born now is the time of monsters uh with those uh words of uh uh, Gramsci, as paraphrased by Zizek, I welcome you to Morbid Symptoms, the uh, uh, podcast of the Time of Monsters newsletter. And uh, today I'm very pleased uh, to uh, welcome my friend John Gans, uh, who's a fellow Substacker, uh, who has like Unpopular Fronts, which I think is my favorite Substack. Uh, oh, thanks, Steve. <laughs> and uh, is working on a book on uh, the year 1992 um, as a kind of prefiguration of contemporary politics as the, the moment yeah. where sort of the radical right really, you know, uh, coalesced in its modern incarnation. Um, and uh, it's yeah, my, an all round, yeah. I think maybe the last New York intellectual is how I describe Tom. As the- That's very nice. Yes, I agree. Let's, why not? <laughs> I, I will take it. Um, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I, I should, I should say, um, my editor would probably want me to say it's no longer just about 1992 anymore. It goes a little farther into, out into the early 90s, but yeah, it's about sort of you know how the, the you know right wing populist moment kind of had a moment of pre crystallization or something in that in that time. So um, yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. I've been a big fan of your writing for a long time, and it's great to chat. Good, good. And so today we yeah. want to chat a little bit about. Um, that's sort of uh, something we've both been writing about, which is this kind of critical race theory boogeyman. Um, and right. I, I want to say, like, so I've been of kind of like two minds about all this, which is that on the one hand, like, this is like as explicitly a propaganda campaign as one could want. Like, the people right. at Manhattan Institute, like Christopher Rufo, have you know, they're like a villain in a James Bond movie. They, they've explicitly said, yes, Mr. Bond, I've created this uh, brand, Critical Race Theory, to uh, uh, stir right. up the, the masses against you. And, and Rufo in interviews has basically said, this is a branding exercise. He wants ordinary yeah. to hear Critical Race Theory and think like, this is crazy stuff. Um, and clearly right. there's a huge amount of demagoguery involved with this where like, you know, like, you know, Critical Race Theory is a legal theory in academia and not taught in, um, so obviously it's not being taught in kindergarten. <laughs> and then, and, then, and uh, yeah. so, so, so part of me wanted to like, just frame this as like, well, this is, as I did in my, in my um, initial post, this is a boogeyman and should be seen as such, which I think is absolutely still true. Uh, and that therefore talking about the real critical theory, you know, the real um, uh, legal theory of people like Derek Bell, that almost seems beyond the point. It's like, you're, are you gonna talk about you know, when McCarthyism is active, you then like talk about, you know, well, actually Marx's uh, critique of Proudhon was this, right? Like, it seems like McCarthy was a demagogue right. labeling a lot of people that weren't communist, communists were, was trying to find communism in the Pentagon. Uh, so, so in some ways, one should just focus on the demagoguery. But on the other hand, I, I think John, uh, as he often does, is kind of like, you know, made me change my mind or at least think a little bit about this like like asking you know why is it that it's critical race theory is the boogeyman name that they've chosen you know and even though all these like laws that are being passed like are targeting something that 
doesn't exist in the public schools. They certainly do exist in graduate education. Like, why is that the target? Yeah. So, John? Well, well, it's a very good question. So basically, here's my understanding of what's happened in the past few years. There's a broad cultural shift towards liberalism. I think we can all agree mm -hmm. that that you know conservatives find very disturbing and alienating, and they have not been able to exactly um, come up with a word for it. Uh, they've tried many different things, and you know by their own admission, they've had a lot of trouble labeling it. And left leftists and liberals have kind of pushed back successfully in their view on all their lab, uh, on all their 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 ways to label uh, their attempts to label it. so they feel some of those yeah. labels because it's like it's, it's very yeah that wokeness cultural marxism they've tried a few of these cultural marxism wokeness you know you have uh, the successor ideology which are sort of described cancel culture which sort of describe and try to synthesize you know various things which you know let's be honest are probably related in yeah. some in some sense yeah um and Isn't or, 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 or he, has, he has something called um electism uh it, it's very interesting to me yeah. that uh, all these like uh yeah. centrist and conservative uh intellectuals are trying to come up with a name because they know that there's a thing but no name is kind of sticking um well, no name is sticking. Because it's actually, I mean, it's interesting why no name is sticking is because this is actually like this cultural change in liberalism, uh, this, you know, newfound sense of the urgency of racism as something to be tackled, you know, coming right. out of Obama yeah. presidency, the racist reaction to that, Ferguson, and then, you know, yes. the George Floyd uprising. All of that, it's a very, it's a really grassroots amorphous thing that's happening on many different levels. Right. You know, there's a street, there's street action. There's like, you know, the kids in Ferguson, uh, you know, basically like, you know, like um, people in their teens and early 20s. And then you also have all these like corporate types that are like latching onto this. Yes. Out of whatever degree of sincerity, like, you know, some awareness that racism. Probably is not much. But also, yeah. you know, like well, opportunism of, well, we've got to, you know, there's a bandwagon. we got to jump on it. So it's a very like complicated yes. social reality, and there's an attempt to pin a label on it to discredit it. Uh, as you said, cultural Marxism, uh, uh, successor ideology, electism, and none of it is working. Yeah. And so, so critical race theory is the latest latest label. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you know, I think this is just a part. This is a, this is this is just a part of how ideological conflicts work is that you want to find some label, some container, some signifier that kind of organizes the whole field and allows you to um, frame every topic according to, you know, your political and ideological preferences. And that's openly what Rufo and the people around him say that say that they're doing. Um, they're saying like, look, you know, we have a broad discontent discontent with a lot of cultural things going on our, our constituency has a broad discontent with with a lot of cultural changes in the united states we've we've really struggled to find some some way to label it. this seems to be getting some traction at least hmm. on the level of uh, legislators and so on i mean i think you know not for nothing is critical race theory the product primarily of black scholars. So mm -hmm. I think that the the racial aspect of it makes it a attractive kind of 
target because there are people who for whom black intellectuals are extremely threatening as a as a as a concept and yeah. you know like th that that's just um sort of intrinsically going to to have some some charge behind it and yeah i think the way it, they've managed to in the same way it is a synthesis of various streams they're using it to synthesize various concerns so you know there's a lot of just old-fashioned red baiting you know they talk about marxism and so on and so forth and you know they talk about there's a there's, you know kind of worries about some alien racial threat there there's basically it, it's a way to synthesize various anxieties that right-wingers have and they feel very i mean they always feel alienated but they feel very um frustrated and almost i will teasingly say gaslit because they feel like every time they try to label and get yeah. a grip on what's going on culturally and politically the left says that's not really a thing, you know? Yeah. And and it's true, some of the things, their labels are crude and stupid, but they are what the left, or what liberals also, I think are, you know, more or less self-consciously doing. It's like, we don't want you to frame these issues according to the way that you, you know, according to your pejorative yeah. ideological universe. Yeah. So like, why would we accept, why would we accept your, and they're, they're saying like, you won't accept our, our, our version of events. And we're like, well, well, why would we accept your version of events? It's, a, it's, right, it's an absurd request. Yeah. So I think that, so yeah, there, there's a lot of reasons why it's, it's, it's getting a little more traction. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that there is a lot of propaganda material for them. Look, look there are these extremely crude and demagogic, um, versions of anti-racism which are unfortunately like being implemented in management trainings and so on and so forth and you know and they're they're kind of charlatanry of its own kind and i and i I'm, I'm glad to admit that and i've admitted it even though i've been accused of not talking about it enough but so that's a lot of propaganda for them a material propaganda but yeah. my point is is that they don't care about that stuff that stuff's great for them yeah. What they they that 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 allows them to say to you know kind of educated middle class people who sort of are right thinking like that sounds very stupid and 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 awful right so don't you want to get don't you you don't want your kids being taught this stuff you don't want this to happen so don't and then this opens up the um you know the broader assault on basically the institutionalization and the acceptance in the past five and especially the past last year in a much different conversation and understanding of racism in the United States that was prevalent. The first thing is Trump. The first, and this is what, what, what conservatives yeah. really fuck themselves and they, they will not face this is that when they went to this overtly racist demagogue they really fueled the you know pretty much correct interpretation of u.s history as being like oh well this is about white reaction to yeah. the you know to the presence of of people of color and, and 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 black people in the united states they gave a lot of credence to that and a lot of liberals went quite to the left of views that they had been to and they said well you know i didn't realize it was this bad yeah. You know, and some of them kind of understand this, but but basically they are constantly at pains to create a worldview where 
they are not the they are reacting and liberals are never reacting to them. And so Trump is a reaction to liberalism in mm. some ways. Yes. But but liberals are not reacting to Trump. They're, Trump is, you know, they're somehow blameless in all this. Um, so they will never just say, well, you know, the extreme shift to the left, it's, it's not that extreme, but the, the, the notable shift to the left there towards more liberal narratives around race and gender and so on and so forth was occasioned by the fact that they, that, that liberals, you know, which I think it's a, more or less liberals, there's a lot of Americans that are more or less liberals, really saw Trump and said, Jesus Christ, these, these, these social justice warriors were right. America is super racist. It is super horrible. Look, we're about to, we're electing this this nightmare president. Yeah. You know, authoritarian, racist nightmare president. So they don't really see that the interpretation given by a lot of the people that they dislike it, it seems more and more plausible, and they're making it more and more plausible. So that's a big part of it. Then there was the Floyd killing, and the response to the Floyd killing which scared the bejesus out of conservatives yeah. because um, it was a very large popular uprising. Mm-hmm. And, and in the midst of a kind of material crisis and then this um, you know, political crisis, I mean, and you know, they were really at pains on a propaganda level and just for their own explanation of events to them to, to try to recast what had happened as not an actual mass uprising but as some kind of accident some kind of alien force so that so critical race theory became a convenient scapegoat to say there is no underlying tension over race in the united states right we all agree that racism is bad but cops are good and most cops aren't racist we all agree about that the only problem is there are these people, the critical race theorists, yeah. re parentheses mark around it, who are introducing this kind of ideological poison yeah. that's making young people go crazy in the streets. Now, I guarantee you that most people who even, you know, I would say most of the most angry people from the... Um, after the Floyd killing, have no idea what critical race theory is, or they're they're going very much on their experience of living in the United States, and and they were pissed, and it was a horrible thing, and there was a lot of anger about it. So I think it's a, there's a big effort to say there is a kind of alien force educating our children wrong, creating you know Black Lives Matter comes out of you know out of this, and they they want to make it not an organic. Yeah, not a an actual popular uprising. They want to say this is the result of some kind of alien force yeah. being arriving in the U.S. and you know spreading this poison. And it dovetails with that, as we've seen all kinds of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories yeah. and you know, class. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to say something on that because I think that this is a yeah. necessary. I I want to like frame it as something larger than. Uh, just the the current moment, which I think the, this sort of conspiracy theory, I think, is an essential component of the right, and it really goes back to the age of the democratic revolutions, 
like the French Revolution. Yes. Um, which is that if you're conservative, you have to believe that society is just and that people are happy, right? Like we live in the best of all right. possible worlds. Things are going well. There might be some reforms needed here or there, but things are basically good. And if there's a revolution, if there's an uprising in the streets, you, um, you cannot accept that as a legitimate thing, as something, well, actually things weren't good and people have grievances. You have to, to right. maintain the idea that things were actually good. You have to believe that there's some alien force. And originally like, you know, the, the Masons, uh, the Masons, the, the Philosophs, yeah. you know, you see, you see this in Edmund Burke and in more, yeah. um, you know, uh, uh, Catholic thinkers of the early 19th century, which tried to grapple with the French Revolution by saying it's a satanic uh, uh, conspiracy. And then you right. know, as the French Revolution was conjoined with the um, uh, liberation of the Jews from the ghetto and the integration of Jews into European life, then that it uh, opened the way for the fusion of this conspiracy theory of Masons to be fused with yeah. the older anti-Semitic, you know, medieval literature of the Jew as po uh, poisoning the the well of Christendom. The Jew as this. Yes. I mean, the Jews are the other in Christendom, right? They're the classic right, right, right. alien force. Um, and so, throughout the 19th century, you know, culminating in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and in you right. know, the ideology, you have this integration of um, a conspiratorial view of society of any agitation that's coming from the outside with uh, right. anti-Semitism. And, you know, I mean, that is the theory of Judeo-Bolshevism, right? That it is right. You know, like if we're having trouble in Germany, if the workers are unhappy, it's not anything. And if we lost the war, it's not doing anything in our fault, right? It's actually things were good. And then these Jews uh, poisoned the well. And then I really... Right. So, so structurally speaking, I mean, not everyone who believes us is an anti-Semite necessarily. No, they're, no. They're, but this is this is the this is the structural thinking, and often it just is not an accident that often it turns out that the critical race theorist is you know Adorno or Marcuse or Soros is fu funding everything, right? <laughs> right, like right, right. Yeah. So 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 yeah. So so so. But I think that that, that that's an absolutely essential um, move in conservative thinking that you have to you have to believe there are outside agitators. Because if they're not outside agitators, right. if actually black people in America are upset at the police, then you have to actually like, you know, change things. You have to change the social order is not just, you have to actually have a reckoning. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think that they, that that's, that's right. That basically this sort of, um, this sort of thing is a, it's a, it's propaganda, but it's also its own explanation, uh, back explanation nation of, of, of what's going on with, yeah. in American society, which is some kind of, yeah. You have to yeah. that. Yeah. It's a, well, it's a nationalist move. I mean, even when national, I think it's a, it, it's a certain kind of nationalism. It's not a, it's not always anti-Semitic, but it often is mm -hmm. um, in European history. But when, even when, you know, the, the, when the, when the right became nationalist in the second half of the 19th century, you know, if it wasn't explicitly Jews, it was liberals, still Freemasons, yeah. um, you know, various groups that did not have the proper disposition towards the national substance. And um, that's sort of implicit in this entire controversy 
I mean, we live in an era in which the right is openly saying they're returning to nationalism. So it's not yeah. strange that we're seeing a lot of the same, the same types of you know structures and repeat themselves. So what what the sixteen nineteen project and the and the crisis or hysteria over CRT really have to do, in my view, is, is with a with anxiety about the the ideological sources of American nationality, and that's and what it means, what what the source of America is, and I think that um, people, I don't understand why it's so fragile. Not to, not to use the idea of white fragility, but I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why they think conservatives. I've noticed, which 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 I find strange, is that they think that American national character is very fragile and can be subverted easily. Yes. So even let's say, see even ones that are that are more moderate and not explicitly worried about racial contamination or something like that. They are worried about just the continuation of the US as you know, Democratic Republic. Let's just take them at their word for that for a moment. And um, they think that this is very easy to upset and that things like the 1619 Project or critical race theory, by messing with the national myths um, will cause a dire threat to national unity. To me, I'm like, I think it will be okay. Like, I think we'll be okay. I don't think that we need, I don't think that the national, I, I, I think that our our national unity is based in law yeah. and in institutions. It's not based in sort of like wishy-washy symbolic ideological beliefs, yeah. which, which, which serves think if we upset those too much, but those have changed a lot in American history as Sam Goldman's excellent book, recent book on the subject yeah. has pointed out is that, you know, the ideas of national unity have actually shifted mm -hmm. and they kind of come in and out of style or, or different, different sim symbols are used at different times based on what's going on in the country. And, you know, we still are, you know, one country more or less in their crises and, and, yeah. and divisions, but, you know, so, I think that there's a lot of fear about the fragility of an American project, yeah. um, that if certain ideal ideas are going to crack it, you know? And I just find that to be a little bit, I, I, I'm not, again, going back to, to what I was saying before we start recording, it's just like part of my, my, my shock is just like, why is this such a, Why do you think this is such a threat? Like why, okay, let's just say, even if children had to learn the most dem demagogic version of, of critical race theory, right? Like mm -hmm. that, that coming out of the nightmare of conservatives, yeah. white people are evil or, or America, oh. uh, America was, 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 was founded in white supremacy. Do you really, how much do you think that's really going to change? I mean, like what is gonna happen? Like, I think what they're afraid is gonna happen is basically, I don't know. I mean, as I was, yeah, I, I would be interested in, in your thoughts. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, there's a couple of things. One of which is just 
the way that the right understands social change, which is I think they have a contingent, uh, contagion theory of change uh, okay. that I yes. think viruses that like you know you get uh, uh, a little someone sneezes and you get a little bit of Adorno in your system and suddenly you're going to be radicalized uh, and I think it's a real I mean I think you and I are both materialists and therefore we understand that people are radicalized by life they're radicalized by being workers they're radicalized by being like, you know, uh, subaltern by being a racial minority, by being a uh, woman or by being gay, right? They, you have life experience. Yeah, they're it. attracted to the theories because of their life experience. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. The theories, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they, they, yeah. I mean, no one I know has ever become a Marxist by just reading Marx, right? Like, it's like some- Well, maybe me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it happens. But I think that's, I, I think that's relatively, right. or, or more particularly has become like, you know, like an activist of, um, you know, like uh, anti-racist activist or, you know, like it's not right. like the schools teach you racism is bad and pervasive and therefore, you know, you become an activist. It's like people see racism right. as a, a big thing in life and then they push for schools to be teaching this, right? Like, like, it's right. Just like at some level, you know, um, existence perceives, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I just, I just happen. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't believe it's an. It's a the, the conservative thing is a fundamentally idealist view in this. I just like giving priority yeah. ideas. Um. So I think that that's, yeah. that, 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 that. I mean, I think, and that's sort of you know, I think that's a natural part of sort of conservatism of giving, um, of uh, uh of not being materialist in that sense of like you know giving priority right. ideas. You know, like the famous book by. Um, Richard Weaver, ideas have consequences, right? And, right, right, right. You see this in all the sort of conservative thinkers, like they, they really, their view of history is, history is the change of ideas, you know, like you, um, whether yes. one sees it in like Leostras, you know, first you have Plato and Aristotle, good, then like, you know, Machiavelli, Hobbes and Marx come along and they lead to bad things. Uh, and then one sees it in like, you know, like, um, Russell Kirk and in and uh, Eric Vogelin, it's it's like it's always an idea centric view of uh, historical change. So and you know going back, including I think the highest and most persuasive form of this is your man Hegel, uh, 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 or maybe maybe not. I don't know. Like uh, I don't want to get into that right now, but but <laughs> yeah, De Hegel definitely De Hegel definitely thought that reflection itself um was an agent of historical change yes yeah uh, and i kind of i mean it's, a yeah. much, it's the most sophisticated form of this and yeah yeah you don't necessarily want to associate him with these other dingbats <laughs> right yeah. right but but i would i would say that yeah there is a, there is a yeah there's a belief that you know i i think it's true in a sense there there is something to it i mean like there yeah. is a portion of of People's theoretic, theoretical frame changing is going to change the way that they they view the world and and yeah. the. Yeah. I don't want to say ideas aren't unimportant. Yeah, the but but for the. Yeah. Right. Yeah, obviously ideas. But I think that the interest. Yeah, but I would agree with you that this this fixation on ideas to the, um, to the absence of what's actually broken in social existence is you know you know and even i mean i don't even in hegel there there's 
that there is a ideas are a way of trying to square some problem in the practical yeah something is not working in the practical existence of, of the subject right mm -hmm. and it's trying to come up with this ideological explanation for itself and those ideological explanations for themselves break down right yeah. and, and don't work and they lead to different ones and so there's all these different self-explanations essentially but yeah i mean i think in terms of yeah the conservative belief is that generally some kind of idea was released and, and this has caused a kind of contamination that's right i do yeah. think that you yeah. know as we're we're there is Yes, right. I, I think that there is kind of a, um, there is a subsect uh, who are have a slightly more material outlook. Yes. And I think that they're, they're slightly more clear sidedly um, responding to this critical race theory stuff, because they are like, well, look, the issue is not actually wokeness or, no. or critical race theory. The issue is the civil rights yes legal uh regime and they're focused on the change that happened in the 1960s in the way that in you know the the changes in the political economy of the country that happened in the 1960s where employers and businesses had to conduct themselves in different and employees had to conduct themselves in different ways because it was understood that you know, great deal of the economy and what was available in civil society was discriminatory. So you know, there were vast changes in the way that businesses could conduct themselves, and the so-called private sphere could conduct themselves. And this has been very difficult on a both ideological level and you know, to a certain degree, I would admit, on a material level for for businesses and you know white small business owners and white contractors and sort of white middling sorts who are firefighters and police and so forth and now have to deal with you know the fact that you know you, it's not such an easy course anymore you have to compete with minorities yeah. uh, for for contracts you have to compete with minorities for you know for promotions and so on and so forth it, you know and these machines of sort of white ethnic inclusion in the political economy of the state and business and so on and so forth is not this not the way it was before you know which was which um and they and they realize you know you know you can be sued for discrimination and so all these things we don't have a good welfare state in the united states what we do have uh, we don't have a welfare state. we don't have a strong labor movement what we do have is litigation yes and litigation is is a key part of the way political economy operates in the mm. united states and critical race theory comes out of the law mm. and it is directed at the way litigation and class actions and so on and so forth can affect the material outcomes mm. for for people and it's trying to come up with a new set of arguments here. yeah so in a way the material kernel of all this stuff is you could say, oh, they're not really talking about real critical race theory, but in a way you, 
you flip it back over and you say they are talking about critical race theory because what they're really worried about is the material kernel of this is that the change in the, they're very frightened. They're saying, oh, property rights, property rights. This is going to change property rights. Yeah, not exactly maybe the way they think it is, but it's going to change the way courts, the way juries, the way understand who has been wronged yeah. and who is deserving of redress. And that is the way, you know, lots of employee issues are dealt with the United States because we don't have a strong labor movement. You know, you, you can yeah. join with other workers to, or, and, or, or we have, well, I mean, don't just people on the left are going to kill me for saying this. We have certain class, we have lots of classes of employment where the classical labor union is not exactly appropriate, yeah. but, class action lawsuits and, and professional litigation are sort of the material replacement for that. So yeah. like, you know, and, and probably it's very hard for industrial workers to, to use the, the litigation system. It's very, it's not easy, but it's different for someone who is an office worker, a professional worker to use the system of litigation. It's focused on individuals or small groups of people. It's not focused on masses of workers. So, you know, that's really fundamental the way political economy works in the US. And when that changes and when people, you know, I've heard conservatives basically say to me, you know, what what is their concern with let's just let's just accept for a moment their framing of critical race theory, which includes every sort of race conscious yeah. idea about American politics and economy and society. You know, they're basically saying, well, um, you know, they're saying blackness. Uh, or, or black people replace the structural role of workers in the Marxist framework, and there's something like they think they think it's a pathway to. It is in a certain way. It's a pathway to reparations yeah. because the idea is that black people, both in a political and an economic way, were fundamental to the con economic construction of the of the country and they would prefer not to i mean that's just true but yeah. they would prefer not to, to deal with that because this puts a great deal of onus on their constituency which is look again people on the left are going to kill me but there's so many times when you look at the way republicans are dealing with an issue and the way democrats are dealing with an issue and you just think who are their constituent big constituencies big money constituencies republicans businesses medium and small businesses yeah. right democrats lawyers yes <laughs> right so it, it's like it, there it was like this with the came down when they were doing the covid bill like they were the, the republicans are like we want liability protection right Democrats were like, absolutely no liability protection, absolutely no liability protection. And, you know, from someone who cares about workers' rights, I would say in this case, the interests of lawyers and the interests of yeah. workers are, are tightly bound together. So, yeah. I mean, not perfectly, but, but I'm more on the side of lawyers in this regard. So yeah. there is a material, this cashes out, and, and some conservatives are clear-sighted about it, this cashes out in material ways, right? Yeah. It cashes out in the way that we think about who's deserving and what kind of claims work in court and so on and so forth. So I would say that even though this is a hysteria and a panic, I think there is something about, you know, there is a hard material core to this, even on the conservative side mm -hmm. where they're like, you know, already 
um, we feel our constituencies are stressed by the apparatus of civil rights liberalism. Yeah. And we view this as an acceleration of that. Mm -hmm. And if you're a liberal or a leftist, you're like, well, fuck you, man. <laughs> you are just going to have to, you're just going to have to pay. Like, you're just going to have to get sued. You're just going to have to make sure that you hire more black workers. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry this is a pain for you, but this is a big problem and we're trying to, to use these legal remedies <laughs> to solve it. So, so that's my materialist interpretation of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's very persuasive. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. uh, that's basically right. I mean, Nancy McLean has a great book called Freedom is Not Enough, which is about the sort of um, the way the Civil Rights Act played itself out in the workplace in the 60s and 70s. And really, you know, mm. uh, uh, sort of uh, fleshes out a lot of what you're saying in terms of um, the way litigation became a kind of primary instrument and fueled the right wing backlash. Um, I mean, having said that, I, yeah. you know, from a Marxist point of view, um, I sort of feel like this litigation stuff seems like a, to me, a clutch. It's like a, you know, like if you have a society where you don't have a strong labor movement, uh, then you kind of need this, but you know, like like a better solution would be a strong labor movement. I mean, and I feel the same way about. Oh, I'm 100 percent with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah the human resources anti-racism rubs me the wrong way because it's obviously a management tool, right? Like it's a way of uh, managing. Well, that's it. the disturbing thing about it. Yeah, that's yeah. the like, disturbing prefer, thing about it. I yeah. prefer, you know, I think labor unions have a mixed history. They have often been very racist going back to you know 19th century yes um uh, uh, uh trying to keep uh chinese immigrants out and and trying to keep uh, blacks from uh, certain uh, professions but i think it's also the case like that there's another flip side of this which doesn't get enough attention which is that the unions that had a strong left presence you know especially before the red scare you know you know got a lot of people fired you know unions did actually were uh, and even after that, in the 1950s with the Reuters, you know, like we're a kind of um, yes. a, a place for anti-racism activism and for like yes. integrating blacks and whites into the workplace, you know, uh, and it could stand still. And I think I, even today, much more importantly, like, you know, the real professions that are getting unionized, like in healthcare, are, you know, predominantly uh, uh, people of color, like especially women of color. Uh, and so... Right. You know, yes. like the mapping is like one would like, you know, like an ideal uh, solution would be a much more unionized America um, uh, where these issues of, you know, like racial redress can be, you know, taken into the workplace and, you know, um, uh, dealt with there. And then you can get people, you know, solidly into the middle class. Uh, but I, I just think, uh, you know, like, so I think, I, so as with always with these things, I think that one, you know, can reject the reactionary case and then also say, you know, the, 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 the liberal measure, which might be the best we can achieve right now, you know, like one has to be aware of its flaws. Well, I think that there are, there are several flaws with it. I think actually, you know, there are like, there, this is a kind of material left critique that I kind of agree with. There are parts of this kind of um, human resources understanding of, 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 of race and gender issues. Uh, in the way it's institutionalized, that are corrosive to solidarity, right? Yeah. That because because they're but but that's again, you know, it makes sense from the legal framework. You know, you're you're an individual, you have an individual contract 
like based on the, the legal apparatus and the ideological apparatus we have, you're an individual, you have an individual contract with the company and you deal with them as an individual, right? And, you know, that is the way it literally cashes out, you know? So it makes sense. And there are parts of it in the way it wants to sort of deal with these issues piecemeal um, and deal with each employee one at a time is that that's the, the human resources um, uh, model is let's deal with one, each person at a time so they don't all get together on the floor and get mad together. Yeah. So like, you know, but again, you know, look, there are jobs that are fundamentally kind of bourgeois that are not going, I'm sorry, that are not going to lend themselves to the, to the model of union organizing. I believe that people in those jobs still have, you know, should be able to have the protections of the law against an abusive employer, employer, and they should leverage those whenever they can. I do think, you know, they are not going to be the source of the type of radical change for the vast majority that you or I would like to see. It is piecemeal. It is a clutch. But workers of industrial workers and workers in low-paid jobs do, you know, do make use of, of litigation, do make use of civil rights law, and, and you know, successfully, you know, even with the absence of unions, obviously with unions, that kind of stuff is way more effective. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, I want to see there more, for a number of reasons, more of these solidaristic institutions, so I can think. Yeah solve a lot of the problems that, that you know people complain about in our society whether it's from you know racism to loneliness not to say they're going to solve racism or they're going to solve every existential problem yeah. but i think that yeah they they definitely cut cut into it um so yeah i mean i get it you know there there is a but what i what i've never been as a as a leftist um I've never been able to bring myself to this kind of anti-liberalism that some on the left have. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, of course it's stupid. It's liberalism. Yeah. It's dealing with these issues and like this extremely backwards, like it's a, it's an 18th century. Yeah. It's all of this. And like, it's all of this 18th century, 17th century conceptions of society yeah. that were just like, you know, and it, it's like an ancient way of doing things. So you're like, Oh, I am one person and I have a complaint against my neighbor yeah. who has like taken my cow. It's like this, it's this ancient way of almost ancient way of conceiving society and individuals. And we're, and you know, it's not the worst. It, it's just like, yeah, this is, this is kind of appropriate to previous ways society works. And, you know, we have this mythology still of, yeoman farmers and small holders farms so on and so forth you know and basically like yeah it's an it's a kind of it's kind of a deprecated way of of, of approaching social relations but there are worse things and i think that there are the worst things are i mean that right to even be viewed as a property holder yeah. for some people is a huge advance sure. because uh people say Oh, we should go to more collective forms of behavior. Well, what is their experience of collectivity is being a heap of 
somebody that nobody gave a shit about and could just write off. So, you know, I would say, okay, yeah, it's not the most solidaristic way, but, but, but but like, you know, it's a step forward for a lot of people to be like your property rights, your rights as a, as a possible subject of litigation or something are respected. Even your power to complain that people would listen to you would be respected. It, that's a big step forward. Whereas, you know, it's very easy to, to be romantic about collectivism, but most people's experience of being collectivized is very negative yeah. because it's being part of a collective, which is basically we can ignore them yeah. and we don't have to listen to them. So like, so I would say, yeah, like it's very easy to be romantic about solidarity, collectivization, uh, collective action. And, and I think that ultimately those things create the more sustainable long-lasting changes in our society that bring more people out of absolute you know destitution and desperate life into you know a decent life but i think there it's you can't really knock liberal rights if a lot of people are just beginning to be recognized in that framework Mm -hmm. and it's very easy if you're a white guy to be like, oh, what's the big deal about liberal rights? I was like, well, a lot of people have never experienced liberal Like, liberal rights are for you for yeah. 300, 200 years. But liberal rights for, you know, are, are, are just being extended to the mass of society. So, so I think that, you know, I'm still very friendly to the rights-based, mm-hmm. um, you know, even, okay, in, in the U.S., labor organization is plugged back into our rights-based, sure, yeah, yeah. you know, co- legal and constitutional order. So I think like that's a good basis. And I think most critical race theorists say this too. They're just like, look, you know, uh, I think they're right about this. When I was reading actual critical race theory, they were like, well, you know, very easy to say that the, the they were arguing with the critical legal theorists who are more Marxist, right? And they said, very easy to say for you, liberal order of rights is BS, but our clients or, or literal clients have had a lot of success mm-hmm. getting something through, through that order. So it's not so easy. It's not so simple for us to say, like, let's just throw that yeah. stuff all out. And, and I think they're right. Yeah. Like, that's just like, yeah, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's worth underscoring that the sort of um, uh, critical race theory is the moderate alternative, right? Like this is actually this is what true centrism would entail. Like you know, this this uh, attempt to integrate people who have been excluded from the system using you know existing rules of petition and grievance, uh, and the the fact that um, you know not just the radical right, but a lot of you know people who position themselves as centrist are now rejecting that. That that actually you know shows how bad their politics is. They, 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 they don't even accept, you know, they, they don't recognize the moderating, um, you know, uh, stabilizing uh, systems building aspect of critical race theory. Um, I agree with you. And also just the, I, I mean, okay, let's just pretend that we're, we're hardcore Leninists for a minute. <laughs> I would, I would hate critical race theory because of its, apology for the united states and the bourgeois state in it because it says i was reading uh that reader of critical race theory 
yeah. and it says all these things like oh people fought in world war ii even though they were yeah. discriminated against and and they were patriotic Americans and we have to recognize it, I would be like, no, this is exactly the kind of thinking we have to stamp out. We have to make, make sure people view the United States as being, you know, it's not that radical. Yeah. Is the fundamental. And, and the hysteria about it is frustrating. And, it, and it's in a way radicalizing. And, and, and I think this is the experience of many black intellectuals and just black people in the country. It's just like, the hue and cry about even the most modest accommodation or request for recognition is so yes. deep that it just makes you want to be more radical because you're like, oh, you won't even share this much with me? Well, fuck yeah. you. <laughs> like, you know, like, this is insane. Like, I'm, I'm trying to meet you halfway here. I'm trying to meet you halfway here. You won't even meet me halfway. And, and that's like, you know, I think if you look at the substance of what's actually in a lot of these essays, some of them are, are not utopian, but quite pessimistic in ways I don't think are constructive, yeah. quite pessimistic. I think some of Derek Bell's stuff that I read was very pessimistic about what's calm, like what, what, what level of uh, uh, qualities is able to accomplish. And I, I think for strategic and for just ethical reasons i have some issues with that I, I i think that you know he basically says and i, I just think this is a horrible conclusion and it, it, it comes from experience and i, I can't fault somebody for coming to conclusion but in one of his essays he says you know but blacks will, will essentially always be in a subordinate role in the united states and they have to they have to find a legal strategy that protects them from the worst excesses mm. of of that position you know and i i i think it's just horrible to have to accept that i mean I, and I, I i think actually someone should should think about what would lead somebody to come to that conclusion not to condemn it yeah you know out of hand but but um you know in a weird way and i think you know cory robin's very good book on clarence thomas pointed out that there is a conservative version yes. of that which yeah which is this extreme pessimism about the prospects of, of actually alleviating racism can lead again to a certain say, well, you know, well, you know, the best thing we could do is um, accord ourselves to a certain property regime. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully through the market and through the family and the defense of private, a, a private realm, um, you know, we can cut out a, a life of dignity for ourselves but we'll never use mass democratic politics and to overcome, mm -hmm. you know, the structural issues that, you know, divide American society by race. So, I mean, you know, that's a conclusion that, um, which is sometimes kind of caricatured as Afro-pessimism, but it's not quite, but um, that, you know, people on the left and right have come to um but you know i like to just pick and choose basically i'm like this fits in there are a lot of fits in with the kind of social democratic vision of change that i have i do think that the united states again it's just i'm gonna get killed for this uh, is it, it, is not i think that we are a democratic republic or we are 
going to become a democratic republic and there are positive things about our political system and our in our society um and yeah so the the parts of it that seem constructive to me are attractive the more pessimistic the more you know oh that's the other thing conservatives are very freaked out by intersectionality but actually like if they were smart they could use it yeah in that in dastardly ways because i mean i was reading one of kimberly crenshaw's essays on intersectionality she was like well you know the big problem is that anti-racism makes us have to ignore issues in minority communities that are problems like domestic violence it's like because anti-racist activists don't want to talk about domestic violence because it feeds into right-wing narratives yeah. about how you know minorities beat their wives and so on and so forth and like we're trying to come up with a framework where we have to kind of insist that those are real issues and you know there are it's just like the the the, the fact that these words came to be these totems for something that was so unacceptable to the right-wingers and something that they wouldn't even read yeah. or try to engage with or say like, how can we make this work with a, how can we make this work with a fundamentally conservative, they can make it work with fundamentally conservative way of doing things. Because again, it doesn't really radically alter property rights or the family or whatever. What, but, but they're so attached still fighting this rear guard racial action that they, that they won't just go to the next ditch, which is just like, okay, you know, we are, we can't, let's just be the defenders of bourgeois society, mm. not white bourgeois society. Like yeah. that's the, the normalization of American conservatism hasn't quite happened because they still are fighting this racial rear guard action instead of just being like we're the party of of property owners to court they're still the party of white property owners yeah. and some and under, understand themselves to be such so i would yeah. say what i would like yeah yeah oh no i, I think that's something yeah. that a really great paint i think chris hayes made which is really worth underscoring which is you know i mean the the argument of the sort of you know black radical tradition um which one can accept or reject or, you know, like interrogate um, is about the centrality of race uh, towards American history and current existing American society. Um, the thing is that the way the conservatives have reacted to this black radicalism, like to turn it into a demagogic, you know, uh, uh, witch hunt based on race, like verifies its validity, right? <laughs> like if the conservatives, you know, right. Uh, so the the, um, the fact that they chose this, that they keep on going back to this as the issue that they want to organize around, and they think that this, they think that critical race theory is how they're going to gain back the House and the Senate in 2022. Which is like you think about it, it's amazing. Like you know, in this age of like COVID, climate change, you know, all these economic issues caused by the pandemic that are churning you decide to focus on race as the way to organize and consolidate your base and to gain political power. And it probably, and, and, and unfortunately it might work. work. Yeah, and it probably will work. It will. Just like verify the, 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 the claims of black radicals.
Right. Uh, yeah. And I think that's why this stuff seems to be, again, as an observer, primarily observer of the right, or as I started out as writing about politics, is that I just don't think that they're like, they're, it's not that wrong. Like, the, yeah. it, it's just Republican conservative behavior just keeps on confirming this. Yeah. And, you know, not, they're like, well, Americans aren't all racist. Like, no, Americans are not all racist. But conservatives certainly are, <laughs> like, it, it, or not—they're not racist, but they definitely view their interests yeah. along yeah. the lines of other racist yes. white Americans. Yeah. So, so you know, they also think that they're like. That's the other thing—they think that they're the protectors of real America. When, when I think that another thing is like that's really hard for them is like a lot of this anti-racism stuff. Even the vulgar part of it is kind of popular. And not to say that it makes it good, but I think that the, I think the, the enthusiasm for young people for a lot of these progressive ideals is very upsetting for them. Yeah, and like, yeah, yeah, I get that it. is the core basis of this replacement theory fear, right? It's not like, you know, like, right. you will, it's not like they think the United States will disappear, but it's the United States that they knew, the United States where, you know, the uh, one, the, uh, the Andy Griffith show, you know, one could posit that there's this like hinterland in, you know, the uh, 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 all small town, all white America, that is the real America. Right. Uh, Norman Walkwell. Yeah. 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 And I yeah. think that that, that stuff, um, I mean, I mean, I think that's why, the, I mean, a lot of this really goes back to Obama's election, right? The fact that, you know, a guy named Barack Hussein Obama uh, could become president and it doesn't matter that he's a, you know, fairly center left, you know, guy who wants to work with Republicans. The fact that, you know, this guy's the president, this guy's the guy, you know, you go into the airport and he's like on the wall of the, you know, uh, INS office or you go to the post office. Yes. I think well, that's it's a similar a shock to the system. Like there. Yes. You know, in, in nationalism, you know, as Benedict Anderson has taught us is always an imaginary. Right. And their imaginary right. America is that um, the people are this hinterland people. Are these are these white American small town people, and that the national heroes are white people? And even if there, I mean, I, I think there has been a small change. I think um, the historian Matt Carp has really emphasized that you know the lost cause they're giving up on that. There, there's a few people that will still defend Robert E. Lee or whatever, but really they they're going to the Jaffa, right. very Jaffa position, which is yes, there was slavery, but Lincoln solved all that. And that it's the Declaration, Lincoln, America, but that's still, but for so if that's your point of view, then 1619 is still a shock to the system because it is a way of well, telling the same story, uh, uh, the well, story the, of, of you know racism and redemption, but you're centering black people. You're saying it's actually the black freedom struggle that is the center or driving force of you know American achieving liberalism and achieving democracy, which I, I think, yeah, I mean, to me, to my mind, that seems plausible, right? <laughs> like, that, that doesn't seem, like, obviously you have, you know- There's the nothing wrong with it, Huh? You, you could, it's not an- I, Yeah, I, I don't really, yeah, I, I don't see, I also, it's just like, it's compatible with other things. I need to go back, I mean, you made a very interesting point. I, mean, I, think, I think it's right that conservatives see everything as fragile and falling apart. Whereas, like, I mean, I'm, I'm in Canada and see it as a, you know, from Canadian point of view, but it seems to me like America yeah. is this kind of like 
amazingly homogenizing force within itself um, of unity that's created through the cultural industries. Uh, and, then, and then actually like overflows on the rest of the world. But like, I, I you know, like one doesn't see um, that sort of, um, uh, and it's, it's something that's based not just as you, you know, I think you're right that like there's an American identity that's based on like laws and the constitution and the declaration, but there's also just an American cultural identity, uh, which, which seems very robust and which I don't think is like uh, gonna disappear anytime soon. So, uh, but, but, but it's a cultural identity that actually the conservatives don't like. They don't like the actual, you know, ro uh, vulgar overflowing um, uh, American, you know, culture that's being formed that which is often a place of genuine cultural exchange and cultural sharing, you know, across uh, ethnic and racial lines. And that the kind of, right. they don't want to build a nationalism based on that. Although I think you can, I mean, I think that's a, that's a pretty good basis for nationalism. If, that, if that's what you want. It's sort of what we have. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I just think they just don't really like the country as it is. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically it's basically what it comes down to. They 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 really don't they really don't like to having to share the country with lots of different types of people and have everything kind of be a, a jumble and a mess and you know part of the things that make America interesting. There's a there's a there's a homogenizing part of this liberal ideal as well. I mean, you know, I yeah, think we can all admit, but yeah. um, it seems like a decent basis to have people not want to kill each other. So. That's maybe all you can ask for. Yeah. As Leo um, said, low but solid ground. It's a country built on low but solid ground. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's why I just don't feel the same fragility. Like, oh my God, if children learn that white people did bad things in history, the country's going to fall apart. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Give I me a break. Add, actually, I add that a little bit as sort of a pedagogical point, which is... Um, I mean, I feel this both as someone who's like occasionally taught American history at a university level, and but also has like three, you know, girls that are like um, obviously, you know, uh, not white. Um, that's right. people recently asking me about, you know, you know, residential schools are a big thing in Canada right now because they're finding, you know, all these uh, corpses, uh, you know, of, like children yes. uh, killed, and it's a very horrible thing. And, you know, but they were asking me about, you know, the residential schools and I had to explain it, you know, in a way that, you know, like a 10 year old and two six year olds can understand. And this right. is, and you know, like when you're actually teaching, talking about the history of race to kids, it's very hard. And, you know, I understand the sort of productive instinct to like not want to talk about this stuff, but you can't really avoid it either. You know, they're, they're living in a city. Well, uh, where, where, not everybody has that luxury. Yeah, no, they don't. They don't have that luxury. Right? Yeah, they're going to encounter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and right. so, so it's it's a hard thing to do, but it's a necessary thing. And I also felt this really at even at a university level, where like you know when I'm talking about 19th century America, like I would often soften things and not actually talk about how fucking racist it actually was, because the actual reality right. is so horrifying that like you know you don't want to like you know like it's it's essentially you know, it, it's almost hard to like talk about, like it's so bad. And then, you know, you find yourself softening or euphemizing it a little bit just to make it palatable. But, but it's true of anything, like, you know, you know, to teach the actual history of anti-Semitism and the actual, you know, like, like it, it takes courage 
and it's very very hard to do right and yeah it doesn't take there's no there's no need to to dress any of it up i mean the, the bare facts of it are just are just horrific i mean yeah. if you read about the reconstruction the read about the reconstruction era it's just it's just mind-blowing but yeah I, I, what i fear is that I think kids should learn that stuff. I think they should learn. I mean, starting at a certain age, they should learn about reconstruction. They should learn about the civil war. They should learn about slavery. They should learn about the reality of these things. You know, obviously for small children, the sheer violence of it is traumatic, but you know, once you're in high school, I think you can be trusted to learn these things and have, but what's interesting is that a lot of the conservative bills are like framed in almost this like woke liberal safe space psychological harm language which is just like oh we don't want to make anybody feel bad for who they are so they can't learn about it and it's just like do you listen listen to yourself just the two years ago you were saying like this is like the worst way to raise children um, no no i i this is crazy. i mean one of these yeah. like, uh, international dark web guys is doing like research to prove that reading tanisi quotes like makes uh, people feel bad and makes people is bad psychologically, which is like exactly a kind of trigger warning, <laughs> safe space. It's action. trigger warnings. Yeah, yeah, it's well, trigger warnings. Yeah, we. I mean, it's, it's we can't handle the truth. It's like, yeah, you know, and at some level, you have to say, you know, the truth is hard. The truth is painful, uh, but you know, people can handle the truth. I, I, I think. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think, and and if they don't, that's them. Like people yeah. might go into, like at least give them the opportunity. They're yeah. still going to be in denial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they. I think they also just don't take. That's like same thing with me saying, like, what are they really afraid of? I was like, don't worry, it's not going to cause a revolution tomorrow. Plenty of people are still going to be in denial about all this kind of stuff. They're st- they're not going to take. They're not going to internalize it that much. They're going to be like, well, I learned that. That's sad. I'm gonna move on with my life. I'm gonna play my Nintendo or whatever. Yeah. Like th- th- it's not gonna like, cause like this. This like there were already this total change in consciousness. I mean, it's gonna take a very long time. People are still gonna be pretty in the dark about a lot of these things. It's like I think any teacher yeah. who has taught people knows it's like it doesn't all get through. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I, 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 a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. No. I think that's right. Like, like it. Yeah. You know, like the idea that like. What people learn in school, like actually changes things, is like not, you know, unfortunately as a teacher, I mean, that's the pessimistic thing about teaching. But also on a more fundamental level, like, you know, a lot of this, the, the the harsher stuff, like it doesn't necessarily make people activists. And like, you know, and that's the weird thing about a lot of this stuff. Like, you know, if you read Derek Bell, like, you know, they could as you lead to a very conservative place. Um, if you read you know, Adorno or Marcuse, like, like, that's what I was like, you know, like, was seen very strange to me. Like, you, the, the idea that, you know, like, it's reading the Frankfurt School, reading Adorno, you know, like, there's an incredibly pessimistic account of, um, of the world, you know, like, I feel like that could just as easily lead people to like, you know, well, well, smart, it, you know, like, a lot of smart conservatives know that, but they're, they, they just keep their mouths shut, like, in private, they'll say, I really have nothing against reading Marxist philosophers, but we say these things because it's propaganda. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, it scares a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. They don't give a shit. They don't care if people are, they, they don't think, 
they don't really they haven't read these people or they like to read about them a lot. And there's just all this new interest among right winning intellectuals in European theory. It, it, like a lot of them draw on this stuff either explicitly yeah. or like there's a lot of new interest in Foucault and biopower and all yeah. this shit. So they they like it. They just want to use it because it scares people who don't know anything about it. Yeah, you yeah, know, if you if you don't know any if you're if you're half educated or you're not educated, it sounds scary. Yeah. You know, oh, my kids are gonna read this and then they're gonna come home and be a, they're gonna be all wigged out and mouth off and. They're going to think all kinds of weird. It's going to be like, you know, it's like Tony Soprano when Anthony reads Nietzsche or something like that. It's like, you know, it's to scare people. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, yeah. I, I, anyway. I think, that's yeah. A, I think that's a good place to kind of maybe end this on. Awesome. But I, I just like maybe that's just an, uh, an anecdotal thing that will drive this home. You know, like the one member of the Senate who has read critical theory and has like engaged with and did a PhD that like you know quoted um, uh, the Coco and other uh, things. Agambe? Yeah, Agambe yeah. is um, a, a, a C, a Siema, the uh, the uh, uh, Joe Manchin's pal from Arizona, who's like you know this great defender of the filibuster and is like holding back the Democrats. So like you know reading theory does not make you a radical. Uh, I, I wish. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah, you know, would that it were so simple. Would that. It was just like we could get people to read a few books and they could overthrow capitalism. That's not the way it works. No, not, not, not apparently not. <laughs> yeah. We've discovered the last 150 years or so. Anyway, uh, this was a great conversation. Yeah, great conversation. Yeah. I want to thank John uh, for being here. Would highly recommend uh, his um, uh, uh, reading his Substack and always reading him. And like everyone else I know, I'm eagerly looking forward uh, to to his book that will like you know uh, illuminate the night sky that is the reactionary right. Uh, well, thanks so much. Uh, thanks for having me again, and I'll, I'd love to come back anytime. Okay, great. Thank you.